0: All right, so we're in was the Parliament Room with about 40 people. And so the, for those of you who are playing the drinking game, that's about how many drinks you're going to need to take because... Welcome. Yes. <laughs> that's good. Let's do after three. So one, two, three... Welcome to the
1: British History
0: Podcast! And this is episode 264, The Lost Rebellion. I'm back. Thank you for being patient as we are away to London and then off-air thanks to the inevitable flu that always follows London trips. But illness aside, we had a great time, and my in-laws absolutely loved it. In fact, I think my new father-in-law is still shaking off the hangover thanks to all the drinks people were buying him at the meetup. So, well done, team. In the year 909, we get an odd entry from the Chronicle. Quote, This year, St. Oswald's body was removed from Bardney into Mercia end quote. It's a weird entry, and it caps a very strange section of the Chronicle. In the seven-year period from 902 to 909, we've got three blank years, two stargazing entries, one entry about Chester getting refurbished in 907, and then finally, that discussion about what happened to the bones of St. Oswald in 909. And even for the Chronicle, that's pretty sparse. Now, in the last episode... You heard about that so-called refurbishment of Chester in 907, and you might have expected the Chronicle to call it the Battle of Chester, since we know from other sources that this was a moment of real mercy and triumph over the Danes, thanks in part to some help from their little bee friends. But for the Chronicle, all of that was cut, and it was just a minor tale of construction. It's odd. Well, that other entry, the one in 909 about the bones, well, that's similar. Again, the Chronicle only says, quote, this year, St. Oswald's body was removed from Bardney into Mercia, end quote. And the way the scribes put it, you can't help but imagine something along the lines of St. Cuthbert's posthumous roadshow with the monks of Lindisfarne. Up on but as we're going to get into, there's actually a lot more going on here. Now, it's not all that strange that the scribes would be interested in the fate of St. Oswald's body. St. Oswald was a very important figure for Christians in Britain, and if you recall, we've actually talked about him in the show. He was Oswiu's older brother, the king who defeated Cathwathlin of Gwynedd, and who was later defeated and killed by Penda at Mazur's Field. And then, because Penda was Penda, after that defeat, Oswald's body was put up on whale stings. Well, Oswald's various bits and bobs were apparently taken down after a while, and then buried at Bardney. And here's where our story gets a lot more interesting than the way the scribes tell it. You see, Bardney was located in Lindsay. And Lindsay, at the beginning of the 900s, was deep in Scandinavian-held territory. And yet despite that, the Chronicle states the relocation of this body like it was some sort of walk in the northern countryside. But there are other sources, and as we dive into those sources, we see that this wasn't a simple matter of FedExing a corpse. This was a high-stakes snatch-and-grab, and and it was carried out by Anglo-Saxon warriors. It signals a massive shift in policy for the Anglo-Saxons. Up until this point, the Anglo-Saxon wars with the Danes had been carried out on a defensive footing. And thanks to the construction of the Burrs and the reorganization of the military, That was a strategy that was working, but it was also a strategy that they largely stuck to, and with very few exceptions, you'd be hard-pressed to find the House of Wessex carrying out offensive wars against the Danes. Even the war that resulted in the death of the Scandinavian King of East Anglia, as well as Edward's cousin Athelwald, had been a defensive war. But here, we have the first hint that all of that was changing. Why? Why? well before we move on we have to acknowledge that we can't truly be sure what we're doing here is detective work but detective work where every single witness perpetrator and victim are dead there's no cross-examination no statements and the evidence is woefully incomplete all we can do is try to create a handful of logical possibilities that's it in fact We can't even really be sure that Oswald's bones were recovered during this attack, nor can we be sure that Oswald's bones were the real goal of this new offensive war. But despite all that uncertainty, this is actually still really important stuff. Because what I can tell you is that in this fight and the political situation surrounding it, we're getting a crucial window into the chaotic world of shifting alliances, unstable spheres of influence, and general political backstabbery that characterizes this period in history. And when, in 909, Lady Athelflaed of Mercia and her little brother, King Edward of Wessex, decided to join forces and invade the Scandinavian-held region of Lindsay, that decision didn't come out of nowhere. If you look at the history of the region – And what was happening in Britain. It was actually something that had been coming for quite some time. So let's talk about what led to the two eldest children of Alfred the Great deciding to finally take the war to the Danes. And luckily, you already know about Alfred's wars. You already know about the recent battle that Athelflad and the Mercians fought at Chester. You actually know quite a lot of the elements that would have led to this decision. But there's another aspect that I haven't spoken about in the show yet. And it's something that develops slowly and subtly. But it's something that has had a significant impact upon politics for millennia. We've seen it in play during the Cold War, during the colonial wars, during the hegemonic rule of kings like Offa, during the Roman Empire. We've seen it just about everywhere. The phrase that historians and international political scientists use for this is spheres of influence. Basically, who has power over what and how much power? Because the depressing reality is that it seems like whenever two or more people get together, it always seems like someone wants to extend some degree of authority of control over someone else. And this behavior extends upwards to political bodies, nations, and kingdoms. The expansion of Wessex and Mercia into the Anglo-Scandinavian lands were part of this same tendency. And it actually started long before that 909 invasion. And the spheres of influence that were in play weren't just Mercia, Wessex, and Danelaw. Rather, we see the seeds of this conflict appear in Wales, and they appear during the reign of Edward and Athelflad's father, Alfred the Great. Now, as you might remember, Alfred spent the later part of his life bringing Wales into the West Saxon hegemony. Major portions of it were slow to join. In particular, the Sons of Rodri, under the leadership of Anoradop Rodri of Gwyneth, were late to join the party, and only joined after their alliance with Northumbria had turned sour. But, eventually, all of Wales offered their loyalty and submission to Alfred, joining the subjugated ranks of Cornwall, Kent, and large portions of Mercia. The result of that union was to create a powerful southwestern bulwark that could stand against any incursions from the Scandinavian-held northeastern territories. It was a remarkable feat, and it represented a tectonic shift in the balance of power on the island. Wessex had never really been much of a heavyweight in Anglo-Saxon politics, nor did they have a history of extending their sphere of influence over Wales. Wessex, for the most part, was a southern player and a relatively minor power in the heptarchy until very recently. And the truth is that dealing with Wales was something that Mercia and Northumbria did from time to time, but not really Wessex. As a consequence of this, maintaining the West Saxon hold on Wales would prove to be pretty difficult. There wasn't the historical groundwork there, which would naturally secure a long time stability. Any stability in that political alliance would come through hard and constant political work. And to make matters even more difficult, early Welsh history was plagued with just as much factionalism as the Heptarchy. And many of those factions had more connections with the rival dynasties of Northumbria and Mercia than they did with Wessex. So keeping everyone on the same page would have been pretty difficult. And that would prove to have long-term effects for Wessex. And this all starts with a young Mercian war leader named Athelred. His rise to power was unknown, as was his lineage. But by 881, he had replaced King Cheowulf II of Mercia. And not just Cheowulf, but he'd also replaced most of Cheowulf's supporters as well. This was a radical shift for the Council of Mercia. So it's clear that something huge had happened within the Midland Kingdom, though we don't precisely know what. But in 881... We were told that Athelred led an army into Gwynedd. Now, at this point, Mercia already had power over southwestern Wales. It was already moving into those territories. But Gwynedd was in the north, and if they could defeat Gwynedd, that would bring almost all of Wales under the Mercian umbrella. Unfortunately for Athelred, the sons of Rodri Mauer had other ideas, and at the Battle of Conway, under the leadership of King Anirad ap Rodri of Gwynedd, the army of Gwyneth defeated Athelred and his Mercian army. This was a disaster for Mercia. The power of the kingdom was severely shaken, and Athelred sought to retain control of what still remained. And so we're told by Asser that he ruled southeastern Wales with an iron fist. And actually, according to Asser, it was his tyrannical behavior that led to the southeastern Welsh seeking Alfred's protection. So it was so bad that the southeastern Welsh were asking Wessex to protect them from Mercia. And as a consequence, suddenly, the Mercian-controlled Welsh lands were now under the control of Athelred's southern neighbor of Wessex. This was a major shift in power. And two years later, in 883, Athelred submitted to Alfred, and he became merely Athelred, Lord of Mercia. But the remaining structural and cultural power of Athelred and of Mercia wasn't lost on Alfred. And we know this because three years later, in 886, Alfred gave Athelred command over London. And that wasn't exactly a minor granting of titles. London, even when it was just London Witch, was an economic machine. So I just can't believe that it would have been given away lightly. Furthermore, at approximately the same time as that gift, Athelred also married Athelflad, the firstborn child of Alfred. And that too was no minor matter. So everything that we're getting about Athelred telegraphs a powerful ruler who was treated with respect by Alfred. And while that might have been because of Athelred's personal charisma and good looks, chances are what Alfred really respected and likely feared was the power of the long-term military heavyweight of the region mercia so that was the situation between mercia and wessex in the 880s power was shifting in the region and it was shifting as a result of welsh not anglo-saxon politics and according to historian tm charles edwards things started to get really messy for Mercia and wessex when king hyfeth of devid died do you remember king hyfeth of devid he was the welsh king that asser argued with about taxes the same guy that exiled Asser's boss, and probably Asser as well. But he eventually decided to agree to send Asser to visit with Alfred, and that started that whole, will you be my best friend saga. That Hypheth. Well, back when he submitted to Alfred, it appears that King Hypheth controlled most of southern Wales, if not all of it. Though, control might be a strong term, since he was subject to mercy and power in one way or another. That is, until that deal with Alfred, which led to a shifting of alliances. Well, about a decade after that deal, in 892, King Hypheth died. He left behind two sons who had a claim to the throne. But unfortunately for them, they weren't the only people who had an interest in the throne of David. And their allies, namely the guy who protected King Hypheth from the Mercians, you know, King Alfred, well he was a bit too busy to help them secure their throne. Because 892 just happened to also be the year where Wessex was fighting off a multi-pronged Danish invasion led by Haston and the Appledore Danes. So unfortunately for the boys, as far as Alfred was concerned, southern Welsh politics were just going to have to sit on the back burner for a while. And into that vacuum entered the most powerful man in Wales, ap Rodri of Gwynedd. And he had an idea of who should rule Southern Wales. And it wasn't hypheth's sons. So we're told that two years after hypheth's death, King Anarod of Gwyneth, quote, came with the Angli to lay waste, end quote, to hypheth's former kingdom. Came with the Angli? Now that's a phrase that's often translated directly into Englishmen. But Angli is a rather interesting term. And it raises a question. Who were the Angli who allied themselves with the Welshmen of Gwynedd. Well, Charles Edwards points out that it's highly unlikely that it would have been the West Saxons. And you can see why. Alfred had already intervened and established an alliance with King Hypheth and the dynasty of David. It was already within his sphere of influence and out of Mercia's. So it's highly unlikely that Alfred would have marshaled his army to support an attack on an allied subject dynasty. Furthermore, just on a linguistic level, that wouldn't make much sense either. The term used for the West Saxons in the Welsh Annals tended to be Saxonis. They didn't tend to use Angli for them. So Charles Edward suggests that the Angli who helped King Anorod attack southwestern Wales probably weren't the West Saxons. However, the history of the region does provide us with a different group that tended to form alliances with Greater Gwynedd, a group that had recently held dominion over southern Wales until Alfred snagged it out from under them. And it's a group that fits the use of the term Angli much better than the West Saxons. Charles Edwards argues that Gwyneth's allies were probably the Mercians. Now, close listeners are probably balking right now and saying, well, I get that Mercia used to control Southern Wales, so Athelred might want to reestablish that, but allying with the Northern Welsh? He fought against them about a decade earlier, So wouldn't they still have a beef with him, despite his lovely flowing red hair? And good for you for remembering those wars and his luscious locks. But to answer your question, pretty much everyone fought everyone else at this point in history. The Heptarchy was essentially mean girls with swords. All the kingdoms were awful to each other, but despite that, they also kept allying whenever it suited their needs. And underlying all of the personal petty politics that is happening here we have the shifting planes of political spheres of influence. See, working with the Mercians and deepening their alliance actually would have made a lot of sense. Gwyneth and Mercia were closer. There's a history there. And critically, what feels like a faded dominance of Wessex was anything but. In fact, if you look at the history of the region, you could be forgiven if you assumed that Mercia would come out on top. After all, they've been the heavyweight south of the Humber for generations. So Gwyneth working with Mercia wasn't an unreasonable calculation to make. And as for why Mercia would want to work with Gwyneth, well, despite its troubled years under Burgred and Cheowulf II, Mercia still had a really good chance of returning to its former glory. Until the catastrophes they experienced under Halfdan's great army and Burgred's less-than-great leadership... Mercia was the major player in the region. And even after all of that, they still had quite a bit of sway until the attempts to hold North Wales went so badly that Alfred was able to nick Mercia's southern Welsh subject kingdoms. But the fact is that their fall from power only happened a short while earlier. I mean, most of it happened under Athelred's watch. So it's not exactly like it was ancient history. And Mercia had endured some serious losses in the past, only to rise back up again. You could even argue that this wasn't the worst thing that they'd handled. They'd been conquered by the Northumbrians, they'd endured leaders who gibbered with demons, and they'd even dealt with a series of short-lived leaders who kept invading East Anglia, even though East Anglia seems to have been designed specifically to kill Mercian kings. They came back from all of that. And Wessex, on the other hand, had almost always been a minor player. So Mercia had every reason to expect a comeback, And by working with Gwynedd, and thus forming an alliance with the most powerful portion of Wales, they might be able to return to the days of the Mercian supremacy. So suddenly, two kingdoms, two powerful kingdoms, that were supposed to be subjects of Alfred's, were quietly joining forces and attacking his ally in southern Wales. That's bad news for the House of Wessex. Already, the sphere of influence that Alfred was building over Wales... Was rolling back, and Gwynedd, which already controlled huge portions of Wales, was coming into the Mercian sphere. And all of this happened during the reign of Alfred, who was a particularly powerful king. Edward, on the other hand, had nearly lost his crown in a civil war against his cousin, along with his cousin's Northumbrian and East Anglian allies. So, how do you think things in Wales would go once he took power? Well, as you might have guessed, the rival factions of Wales saw their opportunity to strike while Edward was still struggling to maintain his hold on power. And in 903 and 904, the sons of Hypheth, the heirs to the throne of Ceredigion and David, died. And not of natural causes. They were killed, violently. In fact, the last surviving son of Hypheth was beheaded, which suggests that his death didn't happen on the battlefield, but rather. It was a political execution, or maybe an assassination. This was a coup, and it was enacted during a time when King Edward of Wessex was too weak to do anything about it. And as for who executed that coup? Well, after their deaths, the kingdom ended up being ruled by a man named ap Rodri, and he was the brother of King ap Rodri of Gwyneth. The same Anarod who, years earlier, had laid waste to David with his Mercian allies. And with the placement of his brother on the throne of David, his conquest of the southwest was complete. And now, the dynasty of Gwyneth ruled almost all of Wales. And because of their alliance with Mercia, an alliance that would actually continue for the rest of Mercia's history, this victory significantly expanded Mercia's sphere of influence. And so in the early years of his reign, Edward, was watching the once great sphere of influence that existed under Alfred being reduced to just Wessex, Kent, and southeastern Wales. The remainder of Wales, the kingdoms of Gwyneth, Devyd, and Powys, were allying themselves with Mercia, a kingdom that was ruled by his older sister and brother-in-law. And you have to wonder how that balance of power was working out between the two branches of the family. And right at about this same period of time, we find a charter that gives us a window into this whole mess. And I also feel like it perfectly sums up what I love about the history of the 9th and early 10th centuries. In this charter, we see a confirmation of a land purchase. But what makes it important and vital for the story we're telling is what is being purchased. We read of tracks to the north of Derbyshire and to the south of Bedfordshire that were quote, Bought from the heathen at the command of King Edward and Elderman Athelred. End quote. Now, as Elderman Athelred was part of the driving force of this purchase, we can be relatively certain that the transaction happened between 899 and 911. And it was likely much closer to 899, considering how sick Athelred was in his waning years. So, in the period of time where King Edward was dealing with his cousin's insurgency, and then dealing with his cousins East Anglian and Northumbrian allies continuing that war. In the same time that all but southeastern Wales was bucking from Wessex and coming under the Mercian sphere. And in that same period of time where the defenses of Chester were organized by Athelfled and Athelred because of the Scandinavian warlord Ingemund and his Northumbrian allies. Roughly during that chaotic period, we're also seeing Anglo-Saxon nobles under the direction of the king and the elder men of Mercia, buying lands in Scandinavian-controlled territories. Some of which was even in the famed five boroughs. And if this was the first time that something like this came up, I'd be giving you a lecture about how this wasn't a cultural war. But we've already actually talked quite a bit about that. And over and over again, we've seen evidence that the Scandinavians weren't out to commit genocide, cultural or otherwise. But rather they sought to settle and integrate in everything from social structures and existing aristocracies all the way down to matters of the home, like linguistics and religious beliefs. So with that in mind, how does this charter fit into that framework? Well, for one, scholars pretty much universally agree that this charter wasn't an isolated incident. Rather, it's the tip of the iceberg, and the southern Anglo-Saxon nobles were buying up land all over the Scandinavian-controlled territories. And the Scandinavians, obviously, were allowing it. And as for why? Well, cooperating and integrating and engaging in business deals with their neighbors made perfect sense for the Scandinavians. By and large, they were looking to settle, and the more successful among them had likely acquired more lands than they could reasonably govern. So it's only reasonable that they would want to sell or grant those extra lands out. And while we do know that some of those sales went to Scandinavians, and we see the remnants of those sales in the structure of the settlements, and also in some place names like Copeland, which means bought land in Old Norse. But we also see evidence in things like land charters that they were selling lands to Anglo-Saxon nobles. And not just local Anglo-Saxon nobles, but also Anglo-Saxons from Wessex. And why not? Coin is coin, and one purchaser is as good as any other. But the reason why I'm bringing it up isn't because of the Scandinavian influence. It's because of the Anglo Saxon side of the equation. While the Scandinavians appear to have been looking to settle, which likely explains much of the sales on their side, the Anglo Saxons, especially the West Saxons, were taking a pretty hard cultural and religious stand against the Northmen. Well, at least they were in their writings. And yet, despite that, Here we have this charter, and we're not hearing about some random Thane buying a plot of land. We're hearing about the King of Wessex and the Eldermen of Mercia personally directing the purchase. So why would they be doing that? Well, because buying land in Danish-controlled lands isn't all that bad of an idea if you're playing a long game. It allowed Edward and Athelred to position loyal nobles in Scandinavian-controlled territory. And those nobles were then landed gentry, which gave them a certain degree of influence in the north. And that allowed them to stretch their sphere of influence. So you can see why they might have wanted to go and buy some land up there, can't you? And when you consider the shifting power between Mercia and Wessex, and the jockeying for position that was occurring in Wales, suddenly the odd language that was used in that charter makes a lot more sense. It doesn't say that King Edward was directing the purchase of the lands. It specifically states that the lands were bought, quote, at the command of King Edward and Elderman Athelred, end quote. So we're not reading about the king acting alone. He and the Eldermen of Mercia were jointly commanding their subjects to buy lands. And that carries a pretty heavy subtext. I mean, if your dad came in and said, your sister and I have decided to ground you, it would at least give you pause, Right and maybe make you wonder if you'd misread the family power dynamics. And considering how much material there is that carries this same subtext, including the fact that Edward is only referred to as the king of the Anglo-Saxons in charters where Athelred and Athelflad weren't present, and also considering the overt statements that we see in non-West Saxon sources, like how Athelred and Athelflad were referred to as king and queen well, it's all starting to feel like version A of the Chronicle might be underplaying mercy and power and that the Welsh annals and the fragmentary Irish annals might have been onto something. And then you have the matter of who Lady Athelflad and Lord Athelred were. Athelred was a veteran of Alfred's wars and he had been fighting and defeating his enemies long before Edward came into power. He was a warlike leader who carried a gravitas of his own and as we talked about earlier everything about athelred telegraphs a powerful ruler who is treated with respect by alfred meanwhile edward was new he was the chosen successor of alfred and alfred certainly put a lot of work into ensuring his succession but edward was young by the time that we read of athelred leading armies into gwyneth edward was just 11 years old The gulf of years between them was sizable. And it wasn't just age. It was also the experience that comes with that age. And now, Athelred was expected to submit his mighty kingdom with a glorious history and a powerful military to the tender mercies of his wife's kid brother. Given what was happening in the margins, I suspect that was something that Athelred wasn't eager to do. And he might have been doing what Alfred had done to him all those years earlier, carefully maneuvering to politically outflank Edward and steal his allies. But, Athelred was old. And now, in his later years, he was also getting sick. And as he got worse and became incapable of rule, in an unusual move for the era, his wife, Lady Athelflad, began taking a firmer hand in the direct running of Mercia, And I can't help but wonder if she herself held ambitions for independence from Wessex, or perhaps even dominance over Wessex. She was Alfred's firstborn after all. And it was becoming clear that she, like Athelred, was experienced in the matters of rule and war. When Ingamund and his Northmen arrived in her lands, she followed in her father's footsteps and sought a peaceful resolution with them. And when that peace was broken, she broke them. Athelflad was every bit her father's daughter. She was even managing her territory in ways that feel quite Alfredian. She had a network of spies watching Ingemund, and when he broke their agreement, she did what her father probably would have done. She ordered the fortifications of the old Roman town of Deva to be rebuilt and reinforced, which would serve them in that battle, but it would also prevent any further incursions from their bellicose neighbors. In fact, those fortifications are actually where Chester gets its name. The old Roman term for a fortified location, Castrum, became, in Old English, Chester. And so, thanks to her efforts, the city was back to the business of its namesake. It was a fully functioning burr, and part of a network of similar burrs. Now, infrastructure like that isn't cheap, nor is it easy but it can have long-term effects for the stability of the region. And thanks to Athelflad and Athelred's efforts, Alfred's plan for Fortress Wessex didn't die with him. It was still being carried out. It was just being carried out in Mercia. Which, if you're Edward, the proliferation of military buildings and the run of successes by the Mercy inferred might have felt a bit like the Sword of Damocles. And then you have the matter of Edward's firstborn son. If we believe the records regarding Athelstan, it wasn't Edward who was Alfred's favorite. It was Edward's son, Athelstan. And yet here we see young Athelstan being sent to live with Athelflad and Athelred. And some scholars posit that Athelstan was sent to Mercia on Alfred's own orders. The whole thing is an odd move, made even more odd when you consider the political tensions that were lingering under the surface. So how exactly does the guardianship of the firstborn son of the king of Wessex fit into the struggle for spheres of influence? I mean, we've all seen Game of Thrones, and we know that wards can be used for all sorts of reasons. They can be used to secure peace treaties. They can be intended to bind alliances together. They can even just be for convenient or some other personal reason. And it seems to me that if we could figure out the reason why Athelstan was living in Mercia with his aunt and uncle, That would answer a lot of questions regarding the relationship between Athelflaed and Edward. It can also explain Alfred's views on his two oldest children, and maybe even explain what Edward's plans were for Mercia, or even vice versa. Unfortunately, we're in the dark on that subject. But given the shifting politics of the region, it certainly is a curious wrinkle. And it's honestly hard to know how Edward felt about all of this. I mean, it's possible that he was threatened by the growing power of Mercia. But it's just as possible that Edward was close with his sister, or maybe he found her presence on the Mercian throne comforting, or both. It's even possible that he had no problem with growing Mercian influence over Wales, because when it comes down to it, so long as Mercia was completely loyal to Wessex, whatever alliances they had would functionally be his as well. I genuinely don't know. But I do wonder if the Mercian royal couple had big plans, and all these events that we're talking about were signs of them. And if that's the case, in the end, it seems like they were taken down by something that they simply couldn't plan for, health. In 904, at roughly the same time as almost all of Wales had come under the Mercian sphere of influence, disaster struck at the Mercian court. Lady Athelflad nearly died giving birth to their only daughter, Aelfwin. It was a labor that was so bad that Athelflad would never again bear a child. Now, Mercian politics weren't as misogynistic as West Saxon politics. There weren't any myths of poisonous women who tried to sleep with Charlemagne's son, for example. But that didn't mean that they were purely egalitarian. And the fact is that without a male heir, the Mercian line of succession was now in threat. And if the Mercian royal couple had any plans for expansion, that would have had a huge impact. And then shortly thereafter, Lord Athelred started to get sick himself. And it was a sickness that was only getting worse. The specter of death had been haunting them for quite some time. And this was a time when the spread and progression of illness wasn't truly understood. And so I can't help but wonder... If this sudden decision for Wessex and Mercia to start working together and to jointly place nobles in positions of power in Scandinavian controlled regions was a reaction to the very real possibility that, thanks in large part to bad luck in health matters, Mercia was suddenly staring down the barrel of a succession crisis. And that brings us back to 909, where Lady Athelflad and King Edward decided to jointly attack Lindsay. Now, the Danes were no doubt a threat. And while they weren't in Britain to commit genocide, and while this wasn't a cultural war, the Danish kingdoms, as well as the random bands of Northmen, had proved that they were an existential threat to the ruling classes of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Thanks to their wars, whole dynasties had vanished. In fact, the House of Wessex very nearly vanished. It used to be pretty big. And it wasn't like they had suddenly become peaceful. Only two years earlier, Ingemund and his Northumbrian allies had broken the peace by attacking Chester. So some sort of retribution was probably inevitable, especially considering the type of leader that Athelflaed was. But what I find interesting about this decision isn't found in the conflict between the Anglo-Saxons and the Scandinavians. What really interests me is the fact that for 26 years, Mercia has been under the West Saxon umbrella. But... If you look at what was occurring in the margins of that story, it seems pretty clear that for at least 20 of those years, Mercia had been quietly, and sometimes not so quietly, expanding its sphere of influence to the detriment of their supposed West Saxon overlords. The fight for Wales had become a proxy war between Mercia and Wessex. I don't think things were as cozy as the Chronicle makes it sound, but in 909 here they are. After a series of unforeseen and disastrous health crises, they're deciding to work together. And I would love to know precisely what brought this about, and how brother and sister felt about all of it. Something else I'd like to know is what was going on with young Athelstan. I mean, here we have a kingdom that was periodically under siege by its enemies, and a royal couple that seemed to be haunted by the specter of disease and illness. So what was it like growing up around that? When his aunt nearly died in childbirth, Athelstan would have been about 10 years old. And when they fought off that great army of Danes at Chester, he would have been about 13. What kind of impact would that have on a developing mind? And what kind of role did teenaged Athelstan have when Chester was under attack? Was he kept out of harm's way with his three-year-old cousin, Aelfwin? Or was he in the chambers, learning the intricacies of military strategy? I don't know. But when Athelstan returns to our story in a more overt manner, we're going to see a formidable man with a capable military mind. And so it makes you wonder what was happening during these years. Something else that makes me wonder is what kind of person was King Edward? I mean, he didn't just send his firstborn son away to some kind of resort. He sent the boy to the border territory of Mercia and into the care of Athelred and Athelflad, who pretty clearly had their hands full with personal health issues, not to mention military matters. And yet we have no record of the young Atheling being returned to Winchester. Now, it is entirely possible that there are big pieces of the story that we're missing and that this whole thing wasn't as dire as it appears. But it's also possible that Edward wasn't getting a world's greatest dad mug for his birthday. But in 909, however it came about, the decision to invade Lindsay was made. And at this point, Athelstan was about 15 years old. He was old enough to campaign. And I wonder if Athelflad and Edward decided that it was time the boy earned his spurs. And as for the Danes, well, the Danes didn't know what was coming at them. But they would. Very soon. Athelflad wanted some strike back. And Edward wanted to expand his influence. And hey, if they had time, maybe they could give Oswald a lift to his new home while they were at it. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Twitter, we're at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right hand corner of the British History Podcast. Thanks for listening.